Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 8th, 2013, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Most of the voice is back. I'll do the best I can for you guys today. I still have some weakness uh, in the voice here and there, but uh, I'll try to make the show exciting and energized. And we get a bunch of stuff from expert council members today, uh, including uh, Chef Keith Snow, uh, Paul Wheaton, And a new member of the council, Ben Falk, also chiming in on permaculture with a very a question I got for that I was like, "Wow, Ben's doing that. Let's let's bring him in on that one." So it's going to be a fun show with a bunch of different variety today. Uh, these are all calls that came into the Think Line. The number to be on a show like this eight six six sixty five Think eight six 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 five T H I N K. Please leave your question or comment uh, in two minutes or less. Please call from a quiet area. Please make sure you have cell phone signal if you're on a cell phone, a couple bars or more. And here's the best part. This is the, the most important part. Make your point or ask your question first. Give details second. It will make the whole call go better. You know what you're going to ask when you call. Uh, don't expect to call in and be on air live because it's a podcast and we don't do live broadcasts. And uh, don't expect me to answer the phone. You'll hear a voicemail and a tone, and then you can uh, go ahead and leave your question, and we'll see if we can get you on. I'd say 25-30% of the calls that come in do get on the air, specifically the ones that follow the rules. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day, number one, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you are a master bladesmith, you want buffalo horn or mammoth tusk or Damascus steel or some other exotic material, you can get it at KnifeKits.com. If you've never made a knife in your life, You're basically still trying to figure out how hand tools work, and you want like a book or a DVD and a kit that's really easy to put together and customize uh, with a little bit of help on how to do it with some instructionals. You'll find that at KnifeKits.com and anything in between. So uh, if you want to take up the skill of, uh, of knife crafting and bladesmithing, or if you want to take it to the next level, either way, check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been reading them. Since I left the Army in 1993, I was pretty broke when I first got out of the Army. I spent a lot of time uh, just kind of walking around the area I lived in. I found a Barnes and Nobles. It was either a Barnes and Nobles or a Boards. I'm pretty sure it was a Barnes and Nobles at a mall that was about a mile walk from my apartment. And I walked down there quite often and uh, would uh, buy a coffee and read books and increase my knowledge. Because it was the one thing I could do at the time as I was trying to find a future and a career. And I discovered Backwoods Home Magazine, and as soon as I had enough money to not go to Barnes and Nobles and pay for my reading with a cup of coffee, um, I, uh, I became a subscriber, and I've been a subscriber ever since, and I think you should be too. I think Backwoods Home Magazine is the premier magazine for people looking for self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and independence, and specifically from a libertarian view. Check them out today, BackwoodsHome.com. Remember, both Backwoods Home and KnifeKits.com both support. The Member Support Brigade, if you're going to order from either one of them, log into the Member Support Brigade, click on Benefits, and check for the discounts for them before you do or for any of the other supporters of the show. If you need anything, folks, and you're an MSB member, please check to see if someone back there provides it and uh, use your discounts. That's why they're there. Next up, check out tspmint.com for some really cool uh, silver medallions. Some of you guys have been emailing me. There's been some delays with the shippings of the initial Ant Coins. Uh, Will and Rob and his team are all over this. 
they are squaring it away. Uh, they've, uh, they've turned over some customer service people. Uh, I want you guys to know that are waiting on your orders. They are coming. Uh, I, uh, I love Rob. He's a good friend, but I opened up a pretty big can of whoop ass for you guys that are a little bit, uh, late getting your orders yesterday. And I, I'm, tr I'm trusting that everything will be squared away very, very soon. And it's just a growth thing. Uh, these guys sold 90, now I didn't sell, but totally sold 90,000 ounces of silver in February. Uh, completely unexpected. Uh, they are now, making their own silver. They're refining their own silver. Uh, they're really taking it to another level. It's just a growth pain. I, I thank you guys that have hung on with us, and uh, I hope that uh, that we get everything squared away and up to speed soon because on the Mint, I got something cool coming. I got probably the coolest silver medallion that you will have ever seen ever in your life coming soon. When you see it, it will blow you away, the symbology, the meaning Uh, and I don't think you, anybody has ever done anything like this in the silver industry ever before. And uh, as excited as I am to bring it out, I have told uh, Rob and the team that they need to get the backlog squared away and get up to full production before we show it to you. And I'm not even going to show it to you until we got that squared away. But it is going to blow you absolutely away. Also, get on over to walkingfreedom.com and uh, either take the walk or help others take the walk from the worst states to any place better. But hopefully... Uh, your state is a, is, a, is a welcoming home to liberty-minded individuals. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll send you a special discount code to uh, thank you for your service. Please do this before you join, not after. I also extend this to first responders like paramedics. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hi, TC and Jack. My name is Chris from Eagle River, Alaska, and I'm wondering what 85 to 95% of my own net wealth should be. Another question is, what plants should I be planting in my unique environment up here? Clarification on the first question. You say that metals should make up between 5 to 10% of your net wealth, up to 15%. What exactly should compromise the rest of my wealth? Clarification on my second question. I live on a fourth-acre suburban lot and plant hardiness zone 4A, so we get pretty cold up here. We have heard that we shouldn't have chickens because of bears, and moose will occasionally wander through in the summer. I'd appreciate any tips on permaculture gardening and wealth allocation. Thank you, and I learned so much from the show. Okay, uh, two very different questions there, and I can only give you so much on each because I'm not a northern gardener. I mean, the uh, the furthest north I've ever worked with gardening uh, would be central Pennsylvania, and we're looking at like 6A, which is a hell of a lot different than 4A. But I can give you some ideas and some thoughts on that. And on the investment question, I can give you some generalities. Let's start out with the investment question. So... I say 5, 10, maybe 15% of your money in precious metals, and actually your net worth, so your total equity in everything that you hold and own. So that would include, if you had a paid-for house, uh, that's part of your net worth. If you have a $200,000 mortgage and no equity in your home, your home is not an asset. Okay, it's not it's not wealth. It's 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 a it's a liability that you're working over time to convert into an asset. Okay, and that's just leveraging debt, and that's the you know homes 
And, and with some situations, vehicles are about the only two things I'm okay with that debt leverage mechanism being used on. So now that we understand that, we can look at the heart of the question. What I have to say, and I say this so many times, and I, I don't think people really get it. I don't give that type of financial advice when it starts getting into how, what stocks to hold, how to hold them, how to trade them. I just turned a guy down for an interview today. I, I think his system's great. You know, and it's things like, well, go ahead and use the news and then buy this particular fund or ETF, put a, put a, a, a put against it. So if it goes down, you're insuring it using a, an option for a stop and a stop loss together to collar the investment. So if it goes up, you make money. If it stays put, you're safe. If it drops down, you can make money even when it goes down. That's great stuff. It's not what I do. I mean, that's Jim Lair, right? That's, that's like the financial sense podcast or something. That's, I don't get that granular with investments. I refuse to. I'm not going to. And I'm not really talking to the caller here. I'm talking to everybody that keeps asking. I don't care how you phrase your question. I don't care how many times you ask. I don't care how many times you tell me you know I'm not a financial advisor and I don't give financial advice, but you want to know anyway. I'm not going to answer the questions that way. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to bring on guests that are going to do it When I brought the guy in for the permanent portfolio, they talked about metal, cash, short-term bonds, and stocks from a generic format. That's as close to granular as I'm going to get with the investment side. Because I'm not going to go into that business because it's a very specialized business and it's not what this show is really all about. So I wanted to give a cleansing statement there before I do what I can to help you here. Okay. What I am going to suggest that you do is that you develop your own understanding of finance and economics and risk tolerance within the stock market, within the bond market, within the equities market, and all of those things. And you have to take the approach of you're responsible for yourself. I refuse to give somebody, because whatever I tell you today, and this is why I won't do it. This is why I won't even bring an expert in to do it. Whatever you're told today could be completely factual and be 100% different tomorrow in those, in those worlds. Okay? I can tell you, don't do it. You know, I'm going to make something up because you'll do it. Somebody will do it. This is another reason I won't do it. So I can say go, go invest in widgets today. The widget sector is a great sector and that's where you should have your money and, and how to do it and blah. And tomorrow morning, the entire widget sector could have a shift that tells you get out and then I got to come back and tell you to get out and you need to get out before everybody figures it out. I, I, I don't do that. Especially, and there, the part of that is this is a podcast. We cover all these different topics. If you're going to cover finance to that level, you need to be doing it every day. If people are going to take, I mean, you have to. That's what it has to be about. So I give you generic overall terms. I do think the market's in an uptrend. I would have some level of equities in my investments right now. I personally do. I would stick with a, with a 5, 10, 15% gold silver ratio as a wealth insurance, uh, program. I would make sure you're holding cash. I would hold cash in a bank. I would hold cash in paper, both. Uh, and the paper cash I would hold somewhere I can get my, my greedy little mitts on it, even if all the banks are closed. If that means a safe in your floor or whatever, I would make sure that some of it's there. The biggest thing that I, I really want people to understand with this, you know, what's, what's the 90% go into? Whatever's best for you at the time is, is the real answer. Because the answer for a 30 year old that has a lot of money 
and a 30-year-old that doesn't have much money are totally different. The answer for a 20-year-old who's just getting started and a 30-year-old who's well-established are entirely different. The answer for a 45-year-old with three kids, two of which are already on the way uh, to college, and one who is, let's say, nine, is totally different than a single 45-year-old. All of these things are different. All require careful analysis and individual risk tolerance, and all need to be looked at on an ongoing basis. Okay, when it comes to the money portion. The big thing that I encourage people to do, though, is start to look at their survival needs, okay, which are also our life needs. Okay, so energy is a survival need. It's also a life need. I'm sure there's a light switch in most of your homes. So it's important that we start looking at, instead of buying food, water, shelter, energy, and security, and sanitation a la carte the way most people do their entire lives, So that when they retire, the biggest portion of their retirement income goes to paying for those five needs. Right? Security, well, they don't, you're paying taxes and you're not going to get out of that anyway. But security also for an older person is you, you live in the most secure location you can. Right? Well, what if you already had a secure location paid for by the time you retired? Isn't that a better plan? Okay? So, When you look at the wealth portion of your investment, please include things like tools and systems, whether it's an energy production system, whether it's the, the uh, a, a permaculture production system. I don't care what it is. You have to look at it. And I, I'm sorry I can't be more specific than that. Zone 4A permaculture, bears eating your chickens, blah, blah, blah. Um, I have been told not to do 99% of the things that I've done in my life, and, and 98% of those 99% have worked out just fine. So just because somebody tells you, well, you shouldn't have chickens because bears might eat them, doesn't mean you shouldn't have chickens because bears might eat them. But God, you know, I, I just... <sighs> There's plenty of people that maintain flocks of chickens that live in Montana, which may be exactly where you are, because a lot of Montana, as I'd say 30% to 40% of Montana is zone 4-ish, 4A-ish. All right, so... Um, and I know plenty of people that live where bears are that have freaking chickens. So if you want chickens, have chickens. When you look at a permaculture system and you're only looking at a, a fourth of an acre lot and you want to maximize your productivity, there's a couple suggestions I have. One, seriously consider a greenhouse for getting plants started early and growing greens and things like that through uh, the winter. Two, look at the hardy things that will grow, raspberries, um, blueberries, Uh, maybe Saskatoons, uh, what's the word? I'm the goji berries, I think will do okay. Probably the most productive crop that you could, you could put in place, um, on fence lines and things like that. It would take up very little space and produce hundreds of pounds for you a year would be hardy kiwis. Uh, these are all extremely, uh, hardy, easy to grow things that will do well in your environment. I would also look at things like gooseberries and currants. Um, with that list that I just gave you there, you can put in quite a bit of, of heavy-duty production of at least fruits. They'll be perennial. They'll come back every year. I mean, there's a limit to how much you can do with a quarter of an acre, especially in a cooler climate. But all of those would do very well. Basic, you know, and, and the reality is annual gardening in Zone 4A is actually really good. It's just you need short species crops. You need crops that are going to be able to make it 
within the growing season that you have. Zone four, you're typically looking at 125-ish days, right? So any crop that can come to fruition in 90 days in an annual garden is more than doable. And you'll actually have a lot more ease doing a lot of those things than I will because I'm going to have to deal with a hell of a lot more heat than you are. And when you start looking at all of the winter squashes and all of the, the summer crops that you can get up and producing in 60 days and kind of run their full circuit in, in 90 days, they all do wonderful in your zone. So a good-sized annual garden is a great idea. Extending that growing season with row covers, micro greenhouses, greenhouses for getting started. Uh, you can do wonderful things with annual gardening. A lot of people always separate the annual gardening from permaculture. Permaculture is permanent. But annual gardening is a component of a permaculture system. A lot of the foods that we like to eat are annuals, right? They, specifically in Zone 4A, a lot of things that would be perennials in, in, a, in a tropical environment become an annual but can do quite well for you there. So I would take the approach of if you want chickens, get them. Uh, I mean, really, I just, I just don't get people that are like, well, you can't have chickens because of bears. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, the mortal enemy of the chicken is far more the raccoon than the bear. It's not that a bear won't do it. It's that um, they're not as – I mean, a raccoon is – and they're smart too, man. I've seen people with pretty predator-proof chicken coops, and raccoons still figure out how to open things and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, again, it's not that a bear won't do it, but a good sturdy coop for them to be in at night – um, you should be, you know, as well off as anybody. Again, I've, I've just seen it done way too many times in places where bears live. Um, where I lived in Pennsylvania, we had bears. We had chickens when I was a kid. So, I mean, I, I'm just saying. Uh, and we were more, more concerned about weasels, foxes, and coons uh, than we were about bears attacking our chickens. Anyway, great call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Jared. I'm calling from Connecticut, and I have a question regarding rocket stoves. I'm making a semi-permanent rocket stove, not just one out of spare parts, but uh, actually something to keep around in case the power's down in the house and I can't use the stove. I was wondering if anybody's done any research into the correct ratio between the length of the chimney and the diameter of the chimney to get optimal burn, uh, optimal temperature, and to not have the air cool off before it hits the cooking surface. I've been looking around. I haven't been able to find any actual hard data on that. If you could help, it would be appreciated. Thanks. All right, well, I've built a couple rocket stoves. I own uh, the EcoZoom rocket stove. I love rocket stoves, but uh, I think that when it comes to rocket stoves, the guy that I know that spent the most amount of time working with, learning about, and, and, and doing everything possible with rocket stoves and rocket mass heaters, in fact, traveling half the damn country just to look at different models and designs is Paul Wheaton. So, Paul, would you take this one, please? Hi, Jack and Jared. Uh, this is Paul Wheaton from permies.com. Uh, so the question is about rocket stoves. So I just want to make clear that we're talking about rocket stoves, the thing you cook with, not a rocket mass heater, the thing you heat your home with. I think it's also good to point out that um, for rocket stove use, while... It's um, uh, far, far cleaner than having an open fire on your kitchen floor. Um, it's still probably not clean enough for most folks. Uh, maybe it's more of an outside thing. At least all the rocket stoves that I've seen are 
uh, for cooking are more of an outside thing. So if you're talking about like what if the stove goes or something like that, then then this might be a good solution. Um, as far as getting uh, the numbers for the optimal amount of rise versus heat versus fuels and stuff like that, it's going to depend on so many different factors. How um, uh, how big is your system? What's the diameter? Um, what kind of insulation are you using? Um, some insulations are far superior to others. And then when the insulation is of poor quality, then it might be wiser to have a shorter rise, and then the whole thing is just not going to, to work as well. Um, when you have, you know, the, generally the better the insulation that you have for your riser, the better the system is going to work. But then it's like, then you start to try and optimize for that. It turns out to be, I think, the optimal length is going to be um, much longer than what most people do, because then it starts to become an awkward height. Um, <clears throat> and, and to get... And it's way too early to get really hard data. There's a lot of innovation that's still going on, a lot of change in materials, a lot of changes in the sizes of system, and there's a lot of variation in how big of systems are we talking about. Are we going to try and cook um, a, a, a quart of water, boil a quart of water, or are we going to try and um, do something that's like on the order of maybe 20 gallons to, to feed a large group? Um, there's a lot of a lot of variation on these different systems. Um, recently, like a couple of months ago, we created something uh, to take on a, a turkey cooker. So we went out and we bought two propane turkey cookers. And this is something that people do at Thanksgiving time where rather than cooking it in their stove, they're going to take a pot, put a bunch of oil in it, bring the oil to about 375 degrees, I think. I think that's what it is. Maybe it's 400 and and then you drop the turkey inside of it. It cooks the turkey in about 45 minutes, and it is delicious. It's excellent. Um, and so we took two of these setups, and on one of them we set it up with um, a half a pot of water that uh, using propane, and the other one we did uh, the exact same pot, the exact same materials, also with half a pot of water, but in a J-tube rocket stove. And on our first attempt, I think that um, the rocket stove lost by um, uh, several minutes, and uh, we optimized the system. And on the next pass, I think that the rocket stove won by three minutes, and I think we did it one more time, only this time I think we gained another minute. So then we kind of had a powwow about how can we improve this, optimize this even further, and you're asking about optimization and we got to thinking, like, you know, right now our heat riser is 20 inches, much taller than most heat risers on uh, rocket cook stoves. And um, we thought, you know, if we got this out to three feet, then it's like the the pot would be way high up in the sky, which is, like, uncomfortably high. Um, and so... Uh, that would be kind of a drag. On the other hand, um, uh, we could get it to be even more efficient. And so we were kind of like uh, contemplating ideas of like, wow, can we take this and like sink it down into the ground and and get it to be even better? Um, and so then that way we can have it at a comfortable height but get a much faster boil time for this experiment. So lots of innovation still going on. Um and uh, I think a good thing to think about is when you're talking about possibly doing this indoors or even outdoors, can we get the cook stove stuff to be even cleaner still? And I've got a video on YouTube about tea lead, and I kind of think that that might be a, a place for exploration. Um, 
to be able to see the footage that we took at the um, uh, a few months ago, that's going to be going into the DVDs that we're ter- currently doing the uh, the Kickstarter for. Um, and uh, Jack, uh, I'm proud to announce that you, sir, are now. You can put this on your resume. Go get your resume and put this on there. Supreme executive producer with bacon, cheese, and sparkles. That's that's on your resume now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I, I want to add a few things to that because Paul alluded to some things that I, I just think it'd be. Ta- I don't think he means it, but I think it could be taken the wrong way. That if you optimize the rocket stove enough so that it was clean enough, you could burn it in your house without a chimney. Uh, basically, is I think how that could be taken if you listen to what he said wrong, which I don't think is what he said. If you optimize a rocket stove until what's coming out of it is just as clean as it could ever be, what you have is water vapor and CO2. And if you put that in a confined space, and you burn that in a confined space, and you sit in there, it will kill your ass dead, dead, dead as a freaking doornail. Rocket stoves do not go indoors unless they are a component of a system designed to work indoors, like a rocket mass heater, which is what he was talking about in the beginning. There is an option. If instead of wanting to buy one, you want to or build one, you want to buy one. And you're wanting something that uses rocket stove system technology that is designed to work inside a home and not designed to be a heater. I'm sure it's going to warm things up, but it's not really designed to be it be a heater and so that you can use it when it's not cold enough to have, you know, if you have a rocket mass heater going, you're warming the place up quite a bit. Uh, so you you can do things with a rocket mass heater. You put in a secondary combustion chamber, and then you vent that through a thermal mass. And you'll find all of this in Paul's work. So that heater can be very, very hot. It can be like a, an upside-down steel barrel. And you could cook on there. You could cook on there just fine. But you, And you could have a rocket stove feeding into that. All of the stuff vents outside. You're not going to die. You're good to go. And that's fine if you live in a cold climate where you can run it often. But if you wanted to cook on one, there is a product made by EcoZoom called La Mira Mira. Right, which is basically two EcoZoom stoves with a cast iron skillet top, basically kind of like an old school stove with a really long, thin chimney that vents out the roof. I uh, think we're actually responsible for those being made available in America. Like most of these stove companies, um, EcoZoom has a fantasy of saving the world with stoves, which is fine. I'd like to help them do that. And the way I'd like to help them do that is I'd like them to sell their very best stuff here in America so we can buy it where people have money and they use the profits to give it to people that don't have money. Instead, they did what most of these companies seem to keep doing. Well, we're introducing it as a charity in the third world first. How about you sell it to us? So we kind of got a group of people together from the audience saying, hey, we'd buy this if you'd sell it to us. And now you can buy La Mira Mira in the U.S. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a very cool system. Uh, I have some other things that are priorities, but as I'm going to be running workshops and permaculture stuff here uh, at the homestead, I will be putting one into uh, one of our uh, metal buildings. I haven't decided which one yet, either the big garage or the uh, secondary outbuilding, and we'll be able to use it to cook with here. And what I love about it is you can pick up scraps of wood and twigs and stuff and cook food. Uh, and really, a rocket stove is the only system in the world that will effectively really utilize that level of scrap to be consistent and reliable for cooking. I've cooked just about anything you can think of on my EcoZoom, and I'm very, very impressed with it. And again, I'll put a link to La Mira Mira so you can see that if you don't want to build your own. But if you want to build your own, 
or just want the knowledge how. You know, get it. I mean, Paul's Kickstarter, I think, is running for a little bit longer yet. Let's see. It is uh, 11 days to go. He's raised 52K to produce these DVDs. And uh, you can get all four DVDs if you'll contribute at the $100 level. Please consider doing that. Again, I'll put a link to that and to the La Mira Mira product as well. Let's take the next call. Hi, this is Pat in Idaho. My question is, how long uh, do I need to wait after applying Milestone, uh, the herbicide, before I can put the chickens in a, a movable pin on the area? Um, I got some three or four years ago and applied it because it was free from the county weed control, and as we know, nothing is free. So I'm concerned about the residual. I've seen some studies um, saying that it does. It goes through the manure and will last a while, but I'm not sure um, if I'd be safe to put chickens on that right uh, now or if there's something I can do to speed up the process of its uh, decomposition uh, so it doesn't affect... Uh, or get it taken up in the chickens. Um, the weeds have started to slowly return, um, but I don't know how long to wait. Thank you very much. Bye. Since uh, Paul Wheaton is also the guy that is, uh, the, as far as I know, the biggest screamer of the alarm of uh, residual and persistent herbicides, I decided to kick this one to Paul as well. Paul, take this one, please. Hello, Jack and Pat in Idaho. Um, Pat, you, you sound like a lovely man. I was born in Idaho, and, and so I'm, <clears throat> I I want to do, uh, do nice to you, but dude, you're asking me about one of the worst, um, uh, chemicals in my life. <laughs> and so I, 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 I'm trying to find that balance between be nice to the nice man and, um, I need to crush what you're doing. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not be angry and what I feel. And in fact, all the stuff that I do today, it's, it's in an effort to be not angry. Try to build good things rather than being angry at bad guys. But dude, <laughs> you're pushing my big button there. All right. So milestone, the primary ingredient in milestone, the active ingredient in milestone that, that makes things so terrible in the world is aminopyrrolid. Um, everybody tried to say aminopyrrolid and, and its cousin, clopyrrolid, is that which was banned years ago. And banned is, it was put on a restricted use list, but it has a half-life of 11 years. And, and now I can just see the emails pouring out or the, the comments on the, on the podcast. About how, oh, no, it doesn't. It says right there it's only 90 days. And, and that's what's called lying. That's, that's marketing. That's, so in fact, you talk to one group of people and they're going to tell you one thing and it's like, oh yeah, it's only 90 days because that's the official thing. Because if it's more than that, if we put down a number bigger than that, then we're going to be a restricted substance. But in the marketing, they're going to say, oh, and it kills all your weeds for like five years. But on the official documents, 90 days. Well, guess what, folks? It's got a half-life of 11 years. Just, and, and, and you're right. Pat, you, you made a good point. Uh, you're seeing your weeds come back a little bit after three years. I'm going to predict that they're terribly stunted and sad, even though they're trying to make a comeback. Um, 
amino pyrrolid. I've got a video out about um, persistent herbicides where we um, uh, show a variety of different people um, and that the, the impact that the amino pyrrolid has had on them. Um, and, and wiped out their stuff. And, and there's, it's not limited to just aminopyrrolid or chlorpyrrolid. There's also picloram. There's also about a half dozen others. I stopped keeping track. There's so many of them. And as quick as they get banned or restricted, then they just come out with a new one where we haven't figured out just how bad it is yet. Um, and so it, it just seems like this is going to be an ongoing thing. This is what makes it so that a lot of composting operations are shut down and all right, I'm, I'm going to assume that you guys know all this stuff. I'm going to not sit here and, and be extra, extra angry. I do want to point out a couple of quick things. Um, uh, one is the thing where you said free from the county weed control. This is the first time I've heard of um, the county weed control anywhere giving it away for free. And so now I'm reaching new levels of hysterical anger about that. I'm, I'm very much against all of this subsidy and let's make the, the bad guys filthy rich. I'm, I'm so, all right, all right, I'm trying to be not angry about that. Um, <clears throat> I made a podcast with a guy um, about a year ago where he said his, his cherry tree uh, was sick. And so we went and we looked at this. This is my podcast 162. Um, we, we went and we looked at the cherry tree. We found a variety of things wrong with it. And one thing you have to keep in mind about something like aminopyrrolid is that it's a broadleaf herbicide. And so um, uh, I said, take a look. And we're observing. We're using the permaculture technique of observation. I think we found like seven different things. But at one point I said, look at the grass that you're standing on that's next to the tree. How many weeds do you see? None. Um, and it's like, okay, doesn't that bother you? I mean, we've seen other properties where there were lots of weeds, and so this one doesn't have them. So isn't this not an, is this not an indicator and of a problem? And he's like, I'm, I'm not making the connection to the cherry tree. Well, it's a broadleaf herbicide, so that way you can have a lot of grass growing. The grass does okay, and then the broadleaves are all sad. So let me ask you, a cherry tree, is a cherry tree a type of grass? No. And then you're going to like think about the roots of the cherry tree, how far they come out. So basically, it was sprayed. So the question that he put to me was, why do my cherries have worms in them now? And two years ago, they didn't. And so through a little observation, I think that somebody sprayed. Somebody sprayed something like aminopyrrolid in order to fight the weeds in the lawn. All right. We, we went, we, we observed a bunch of other different things, but, but it's basically you've pushed the button to tell Mother Nature to come take the cherry tree out, and that's why. But that, that's a, that's a similar story, but not quite the same. Um, I, I also want to point out that it, it, hopefully you're thinking to yourself, there's no room in my life to have this toxic gick. And I, I want to get rid of it. I hope all the listeners are thinking like, oh, I, I errantly, foolishly, in my past, bought Toxic Gick, and I want to get rid of it. I, I think uh, um, nearly every community has um, a, a system where like once a year you can go and turn in your Toxic Gick. And then people that are still sold on the Toxic Gick, they can pick it up there instead of buying new Toxic Gick. So um, I, I really am a big fan of these systems. Take it in there, and then um, some of it they dispose of properly, and some of it people can just pick up and take home and use that instead of buying it at the stores. Now, of course, for a lot of these, they've been changing the laws because, of course, the reason why it's free 
uh, is that the lobbyists came in and said, why doesn't the government buy um, uh, $100,000 worth of this stuff and, and stick the bill on the taxpayers and then, you know, get rid of all the weeds in the area using our toxic gick and we get rich. And then when you start, you know, giving it away for free, then, of course, that also takes away from their market share. So then they pass laws saying, oh, you can't give it away because it's toxic and somebody could get hurt. But you can still sell it in the store. It's still just as toxic and somebody could still get hurt. But now somebody gets rich off of it. So, um, all right, setting that aside, I, I want to, I just want to let people know we've got a big thread out at Permis where we talk about getting rid of your toxic gick and, and these systems and all the different ways to be able to find one in your area. All right, finally, the actual question, how long do I need to wait after applying this poison to my land until I can safely put my chickens on it? It depends upon your definition of safe. Um, it depends on how much toxic gick do you want to have in your own system. Now, granted, we're talking about something that is a poison for a broadleaf plant, which um, the level of toxicity that it causes to a human being is still being explored. And as soon as we get hard evidence to show that it's extremely toxic, it'll probably take 10 years until we can get the product off of the market. And then in that time, they'll come up with three more for which we haven't done the studies yet. And we'll be able to poison you a whole new way. So we have determined that an animal will take in the poison and then um, it will generally pass right through the animal. However, we also know that some of it does reside in the animal, and in all animals with all pesticides, it concentrates in the fat cells of the animal. So for a while, they were saying beef causes cancer, and specifically, it's the fat of the beef that causes cancer. More accurately, what they should have said was, is that when um, a bovine goes and consumes something treated with pesticides, the pesticides go into the animal and get concentrated into the fat cells. So it's not that the fat of the beef is causing cancer. It's the pesticide that's concentrated that's causing the cancer. Here we have, and and more accurately, that particular kind of pesticide was an herbicide. And now, once again, we're talking about an herbicide. Does it cause cancer? It's tough to tell. A lot of people are of the school of thought of, you know what, I'm just going to try and grow a garden or raise chickens without poisons. Just do it without poisons at all. It's the only way to be sure. And yet, here is one where it can last um, 11 years, 20 years, 25 years. It'll still be there. So you said how long to wait. It's not a matter of like, oh, on this date, it's all gone. No, it's it's going to be there for decades. It's just that it's going to have a half-life. Now, what are the solutions for this? So anyway, the question, how long do you wait? It depends on how much toxicity you're okay with. And and now you've got some weeds that are starting to come back, and then so then um, the the chickens will be able to nibble at that, nibble at their stuff. They will live. The chickens will live through this. Um, but is it the right thing to do? Do you want to consume the toxins and stuff like that? For a lot of people that want to be able to um, uh, have uh, a garden without any toxins, um, that you know known and unknown, and we don't know how toxic it is and stuff like that. The solution that they've been going with when their property has been tainted with something like aminopyrrolid is that they remove the top 18 inches of soil and haul it to the dump. And then they go to a super weedy field and get soil from there and move it to their house. 
And so, yeah, we're talking about something from $3,000 to $10,000 worth of effort. And, uh, uh, and I, I know of probably at least six people that I've talked to that have done exactly that. Technically, the, um, the, the aminopyrrolid will break down with UV radiation, but I mean, we're, you're talking about something that's like a millimeter thick on the surface and all the stuff that's under the surface won't do it. So then you end up trying to like till and till and till to kind of get it to break down faster, but now you're losing all your organic matter. Because every time you till, you lose 30% of your organic matter every time. So that's not a, that, that's like a, that's a terrible solution. Um, and, and, but, you know, that's, that's a path. I mean, this is, this is how the stuff is designed to work. Finally, I just want to say, <laughs> I like to think that I'm way beyond all the permaculture stuff we talk about. It's like we've already decided that GMOs are terrible, that, herbicides and pesticides are terrible just universally and and then all the things that we do to try to build a better world and have a better garden and have a better farm and have a better homestead that I like to think that we are like an order of magnitude beyond this um I stopped trying to follow all the toxic gick stuff like 10 years ago and um but it still keeps cropping up <laughs> you can't hide from it uh, at a presentation I was giving in Oceanside uh last summer it was bizarre. We're here to talk about permaculture, and yet an enormous chunk of uh, of the uh, presentation was devoted to like talking about poisons. And finally, I had to stop. No more. No more. We're not talking about poisons anymore. Um, all right. Uh, so, <laughs> Jack, thanks for the opportunity for me to get all riled up and pissed off at your lovely listeners. <laughs> All right, well, I let Paul do that because I think it was a very important lesson in why not to do this stuff and how bad this stuff really is. But I don't feel that Paul gave the man a legitimate um, solution, and I'm going to give what I consider to be a legitimate solution. It sounds to me like this gentleman put this particular herbicide in an area, and in an area that's considerably larger than the entire property. Because he said, how long before I can put the chickens there? Not how long before I can put chickens there. The chickens implies the chickens exist. Moving them there implies that they exist somewhere else. Therefore, it implies that the chickens have more property than just this area that was treated, probably a lawn-like area on a larger homestead, a couple acres or something like that. This is what I would do. I would use Paul's solution to chickens, and I would not worry about the fact that aminopyrrolid was ever put there, and I would put nature to work at accelerating the remediation of the toxicity that man put on the ground. I would start paddock shifting chickens, and I would paddock shift them right across the place where this aminopyrrolid crap was placed. Assuming you have enough property to uh, to do a decent paddock shift, I would also not do paddock shift maybe the way that I plan on doing it here, which is it's in this spot, and then it moves one space, and then one space, and one space. I might go space without amino pyrrolid, and then way over to where you, the, the round was treated and have the chickens there. And I want to pull them back off of that space to another paddock that wasn't treated, and back, if I can do that. If I can do that, if the entire property was 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 done this, I would put them through it rapidly over and over and over and over again. And I'm sorry that the chicken is getting some residual gick that I don't want it to have. It's probably getting a lot less toxicity than it's getting eating the GMO feed in a Pilgrim's Pride or Tyson chicken house. And it's still going to have a pretty decent life for a chicken. In the end, a chicken is a chicken. I think that the more you do that, 
the more rapidly nature will take its course and this stuff will be remediated. And the more you can get biological and fungal uh, activity, uh, both bacterial and fungal activity going on in your soil, the more rapidly components that are there that are toxic, even before they break down, will get bound up into places where they're still there, but they don't function the way that they're supposed to anymore. They don't, they don't get, it basically shuts them down. You can uh, watch a video uh, that Jeff Lawton did about toxins and compost, and his point is that it depends on how much. So it sounds like this was treated once in an area, and now you've got some weeds coming back. So we know the effects are beginning to wane. I would tell you that pulsing chickens through there will accelerate the remediation. Um, let's say that you're saying, well, I want these birds for eggs. And I really don't want uh, a lot of this stuff in my eggs. Well, when they lay eggs during uh, that particular period of time, so let's say you put them into this area, they're in there for a day, for a day or two, throw the eggs away. It's just a few eggs. And, and then pulse them back through. And I, gu I guarantee you if you do this, whether Paul likes it or not, I guarantee you in two years you will walk out on your property and you will look down at the ground and you will go, I can't see where I did this and where I didn't anymore. If you were two, only a year into it, I wouldn't make that claim. But at this point, as soon as you start to see the, the broadleafs reemerge, if you put animals through the system, shred the system, let the chickens bring it up, let the chickens cause the UV exposure, let the chickens take the hit, they're still just a chicken, that's my solution, let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is Tommy from Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, just a quick question, I'm going to get right down to the point, um, in a bug out situation, so we, if you have to bug out, or for example, you don't, just even regular day hiking or something, but let's just say that you know, all the cell phone towers and all that are down, and there's no use of cell phones. Let's say you have no two-way radios. Do you think, and the power goes down, do you think that if two people who are close to each other have, as in distance, have their cell phones, do you think Bluetooth capabilities would still be able to work? And maybe be able to do, because, you know, there's like applications on iPhones and stuff that you could use Bluetooth to communicate. Do you think that could still work? That technology would still be able to work at that point? I don't see why it wouldn't, but I just would like to hear your opinion on that and what are the pros and cons of doing that, perhaps. Just in case, like, if something would happen, you'd be able to just hop on an app. You and your friend can go do, like, you know, situations if you have to leave each other for a little bit, not too far out, but just in case you can still keep in, uh, keep in contact. So, just, uh, you know, I wanted to ask your opinion about that, Jack. Love what you do with the show. Thank you very much, and uh, you have a great day. Well, it'll work. I mean, it's it's a function of the device. It's not a function of the devices on the network. So as long as you have power in both devices and as long as those two devices can communicate with each other via Bluetooth with a Bluetooth sync, it'll work. But the maximum range that I know of of any Bluetooth right now is about uh, 30 meters, which is roughly 150, 155 feet. Um That's so close that you might as well have, like, remember when you were kids and you took two soup cans and put a string between them and you would stretch the string out? I mean, 150 feet. Um, we're talking three first downs on a football field. 
I mean, it's just, you can see each other very, very clearly. You could probably communicate better with sign language. Now, if there's Bluetooth devices that are going much further than that, somebody let me know. I'd love to hear about it. But that's, as far as I know, the most modern versions of Bluetooth are limited to about 30 meters. Okay? So, my situation then is why don't you have a secondary communication system? If you're thinking this far ahead and you're going to have a Bluetooth device and, and, and figure out how to do all this, why not just, you know, if nothing else, run over to um, Amazon.com, pick up some Midland or Motorola consumer-grade, uh, you know, two-way radios. You can get a pair with chargers and everything for about 58 bucks. And they'll say something stupid on them like 36-mile range, 40-mile range, 42-channel Mossy Oak with 36-mile range, something like that, okay? And that is complete and total bullshit. But good flat surface, decent line of sight, uh, even with trees and stuff in the way, a mile. Uh, optimum conditions, two miles. And you've got 36 channels on most of these, or 42 channels on some other ones. So you've got the ability to flip around if you need to kind of seek some privacy. And uh, I, I just think that, you know, you can look at ham radio, you can look at MERS, which is what I use on property here, and I think they're a better solution. But if you just want a simple way to be able to communicate with each other um, and you're worried about that, Put handhelds into your preparedness kit, your bug out bag, your camping kits, uh, what have you. They work. Um, they just about always work within uh, a set range. They certainly have greater range than Bluetooth, uh, probably ever will. Um, so I, I just think it's a better solution. Yes, one more thing to carry. You need batteries and ability to charge batteries, but you need that with your cell phone anyway. If the grid's down, if you don't, you, you know, you still have a limited, uh, frequency with your cell phone. And I would say if you want to communicate with somebody, uh, at 30 meters, which is about the range of Bluetooth, start working on sign language with that person right now because that is a much more effective means um, talking loud enough for them to hear you on the phone. They can probably halfway hear you uh, without the phone. I, I guess there could be some unique individual applications, security style things, you know, where you might be 20 yards away and you talk quiet and then that person would be able to actually make out what you're saying and somebody you know 20 meters the other direction wouldn't but um man the radios are just a better solution there let's take another call hey jack this is clinton in cincinnati country root city job in the forum i have been trying to find recipes for homemade sausage on the internet and uh i'm, I'm trying to find something that comes close i'm sorry this is a question for chef keith snow um i love Tennessee Pride breakfast sausage. And I've been trying to find recipes on the internet that come close, uh, or you know, maybe even the exact same thing, because I really don't like eating who knows what they put in there. I feel much better being able to say I made it myself, I got it from the store, I, you know, there's no who knows what in ingredients are in there. Um, so that's my question. Do you know of any recipes that I can use to make breakfast sausage that come close to Tennessee Pride? Um, appreciate it, and uh, you guys do an awesome job. Thanks. Bye. Okay, and uh, Keith is pretty well settled at his new place in Montana. So, uh, Chef Keith, what say you? How do we make our own sausage and make it better than what you get in the store? Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. Wanted to answer Clinton's question from Cincinnati. So, Clinton, you like that Tennessee Pride breakfast sausage. Now, i got to tell you, um, that's pretty good stuff. There's there's a couple other brands out there that uh, 
are uh, equally tasty. And uh, there's definitely some regional brands. Back in Western North Carolina, we had a brand called Nieces, and uh, it, it looked different. It was packed in a one-pound square, um, like butcher paper, but that was pretty tasty stuff, particularly their um, their uh, hot sage sausage was very good. But um, all of these sausage brands have a few things in common. Number one, their recipes are very closely guarded. So the combination of spices that they put in there, it's not public knowledge. So you're not really going to find, uh, unless somebody that works at the plant gives it up, you're not going to find the exact recipe. And I know the thing that's uh, most important to you is is um, not the spices, but not the junk, getting rid of the junk. And all of these sausages have uh, some preservatives in them. Number one that they all have is something called saltpeter. This is very common. It's not a... Not a strange ingredient, you know, not one maker uses it, everyone uses it. And it's used in lots of stuff. It's potassium nitrate or saltpeter. What it does in cured foods or, you know, sausage, force meat, this type of thing, is it gives it that pink color. And a lot of times, um, like if we buy sausage from the store, or even locally here, we're now in uh, western Montana, so we're um, in a in a pretty remote area out here. But we can get a lot of, you know, handmade products, including sausage. And even the local stuff is going to have some of this potassium nitrate in it. And that is why a lot of times when you cook, let's say, linked sausage, like Italian sausages or whatever, you can cook these things on the stove and they're good and cooked. I mean, they've been on there 25, 30 minutes. They're good and cooked, well caramelized. And you slice them open and they look a little pink in the middle. And a lot of times people will be like, whoa, th- this is this is rare or this is raw in the middle. And that's the potassium nitrate because what it does is provide a very pink color. So it's also, it preserves it, but it also provides a pink color. And uh, it's used in most cured foods like sausage and bacon, but it has other uses that you might find interesting. Uh, fertilizers, it's food additive, rocket propellants, fireworks. And it's also one of the uh, ingredients in gunpowder. So uh, <laughs> how people thought to put that in food, I am not sure. But I don't like it, and you can make sausage without it. It may um, look a little different. Now, the main reason they use it, it does preserve, but it's also it's the colorant, and that's the main reason that these folks will use uh, saltpeter, and it's prevalent, and this stuff definitely is uh, known to cause health problems in rats and mice and all that. It's pretty much a, a carcinogen. So if you want to make your own sausage, it's not difficult at all. And here's the thing. You have to use the right cut of meat. Now, most sausage is made from the shoulder of the pig or what they call the Boston butt. And those of you that like to barbecue, when you get one of those you know, butts and you rub that butt and you smoke that butt, that is pork shoulder and that is pretty much the same stuff that they make breakfast sausage out of. Now, you control the amount of fat and this is where sometimes people that make sausages at home or breakfast sausage in this case, they kind of go awry because when you get it at, you know, in the store, it's all blended up, you just cook it, you don't give a lot of thought to the fat content and some folks will say, you know, if they get a Boston butt, this is a fatty cut of meat, and that's why it takes forever to cook it. That's why it's such a succulent, delicious, um, you know, chunk of meat. And when you cook it a long time, all that collagen and that 
fat in there, that marbling, that stuff, when it reaches a certain temperature, about 190 degrees, it starts to, to melt and become luscious and, and gorgeous. But if you take all that fat out of there, you're going to have some really lean sausage. Now, pork, other cuts of pork, tenderloin, loin, things like that, man, they, they can go dry on you in no time. They don't have much fat in there. Um, and people tend to do that. They start making sausage at home and, oh boy, this Boston butt has a lot of fat in it. And then they start playing around with pork loin and, and things like that. And all of a sudden you've got a dry, um, firm sausage that just does not taste so good. So don't be afraid of the fat. Fat is flavor. So go and get yourself, this is how you make it. You gotta have a, um, the other thing is you need to have a grinder. And I don't like meats, sausages, things like that ground at the supermarket. Now, of course, I've eaten it many times, even recently, but there's always that little side of me that worries whether these folks have a clean grinder. But at home, I'm a, I'm a, a militant about cleaning my grinder. I mean, that thing, there is nothing living in that thing when I'm done cleaning it. Because I scrub it out, it's rinsed, it's soaked in bleach, the whole thing. And I know bleach is a is a toxic substance, but it does kill bacteria. So back to making it. You need uh, some type of a grinder. Now, there's plenty of hand grinders available, and I do recommend those, the kind that you can you know, attach to your counter and just spin, and uh, you can grind your meat. Those are fine. Or you can use a stand mixer, and we've got a stand mixer. It's got an attachment with a, a sausage-making, um, you know, uh, yeah, a grinder, I guess you'd call it. And you just put your the meat in there, and it just comes out ground. And you can choose basically the size of the um, the, the cut. And uh, for sausage, you probably want a pretty fine cut. And this is why it'd be very difficult to do it with a knife at home. Is it possible? Sure. It takes a lot of work. It's a mess. So you want to grind it. Now, when you grind up um, this butt, you, you'll carve out pieces. Make sure you've got at least 40% of it is has got to be fat. So when you're cutting it, you'll see there's chunks of meat and then there's parts that are real fatty. Make sure you get some fat in there. And then from there, once you've got this ground mixture, there's no magic here. These people are seasoning the food, right? They are putting that potassium nitrate in there, but then they're seasoning it. And this is where, again, a lot of home cooks just don't realize um, how to season foods. Now, I did a show uh, on the Harvest Eating Podcast about seasoning. Maybe you want to listen to that one. It's pretty recent, I think, like maybe one 117. But when you're making this sausage, the amount of seasoning per meat is a lot higher than you might think. And this is why you know, Tennessee Pride and some of these others, they taste so good, is they're not afraid to season it. Now, if you take meat, and you can buy ground pork in the store. If you want to take a shortcut, you can find ground pork in the store. Just make sure it doesn't look too lean, because depending upon what they grind, if it's too lean, you're, you're not going to like the sausage. Um, so let's just say you've got your sausage mix. Now you, you need to season it up. And common seasonings for sausage, um, salt and pepper, number one. A lot of times there's sugar in there. And then they add sage. And for this, there's a product in the store that you can buy. It's called ground sage or rubbed sage. It's very dry. You certainly could do it yourself by getting fresh sage leaves. You put your oven on about 170 with the door open, throw the sage leaves on a sheet pan, and let them get completely dry. But it's easy to burn, so be careful. Once you've got the sage all dry, you just want to rub it together in your fingers, chop it up, whatever you have to do. Um, it should be dry enough to where you could rub it in your fingers, and it gets very powdery. Now, sausage 
good sausage in my mind. Breakfast sausage has got quite a bit of um, rubbed sage in it. Also, what about spice? This is where you can get creative. Um, I wouldn't recommend chili powder because it's going to taste like chili. But th- stuff like cayenne pepper or just pepper flakes or another way you can make it really cool is to try and find um, some chipotle peppers that are not in adobo. So they're not soaking in that um, that barbecue sauce or that tomato sauce that you find in the can. You can get uh, smoked jalapeno, that's what a chipotle is, dried. Then you can put you can put that in the blender with other dried chilies and make your own sort of uh, chili powder and just go sparingly. This stuff can be really hot. You mix some of that in there. Um, also, a little bit of cumin is wonderful in sausage. So this is basically an experiment in seasoning. And you need to have these herbs and these spices and you need to use them. Uh, you can't be you know, kind of shy with them. Now, we've got seasonings in the Harvest Eating store. They're, they're 100% organic, and one of them in particular is actually really great, um, two of them that are really great for making sausage. One is the northern Italian seasoning, and the other one is the grilled chicken seasoning. Now, that grilled chicken has got um, a lot of these particular flavors. We're talking about it. It has uh, cumin and, and lots of different chilies in there, so it's it's got a little spice to it. And uh, that is great in breakfast sausage if you want a shortcut. But there's blends that you can get in the store as well. Um, and there's fresh spice shops all over that you can buy, you know, these sort of Mexican flavors or whatever. But this is definitely going to be an exercise in seasoning. And what I suggest you do is grind up, let's say, five pounds of um, of meat. Put it in five different bowls and then get a little digital scale because, remember, you want it to taste just like Tennessee Pride. Um, you're never going to get it exactly, so don't be disappointed. I'm just being honest here. Again, a trade secret carefully guarded is that mix of, of stuff. But um, have five bowls, get a digital scale, and get all these spices together and spice them five different ways. But make sure that you um, be a little anal and write down the weights. Not Don't do it by volume. Do it by weight. So if you've got a little digital scale, they're not expensive, and you weigh your salt, weigh your your sugar, <clears throat> your sage, weigh everything, write it down, and then um, taste the different sausages. Cook them and make sure it's well mixed, and then you should have an idea on what you like after that. But that is what I would do to try and attempt to copy that uh, Tennessee Pride sausage. The other thing that people don't do is when you cook the stuff, you can cook meat, and uh, you can just cook it for a little bit. It'll be cooked through, and it might look gray. You want to have some heat under that pan. You want some of that caramelization on the outside with, with that sausage. But once you get this recipe down, man, you can do a lot with breakfast sausage. And for me, a couple of slices of, of uh, homemade breakfast sausage with a little maple syrup on top, a couple of local fried eggs, you know, some crispy homemade toast, a cup of coffee, life is good. I mean, that is some good, good eating. I know a guy locally here, fit as a fiddle, and he eats a big pile of homemade sausage and two or three eggs every single morning. That's the way you want to be eating, folks. So I hope that answered your question. If you have any um, direct questions, Keith at HarvestEating.com. And if you search the Harvest Eating website, just put in sausage. There is a video there of, of a breakfast sausage, and that one's made with ground turkey. And... You know, honestly, it's lean, but that was back like in 2007 when I was trying to do things that were a little more lean. I've since gotten a lot smarter. 
So uh, ground turkey is going to make a pretty dry-tasting sausage. So blah, use the pork butt. Um, while I've got your attention, do check out the Harvest Eating Store for those 100% organic spice blends. Really awesome stuff. And also, I would love to have more of you TSPers listening to my podcast over at Harvest Eating or in the iTunes Store. And Jack... As always, thanks so much, man, for doing what you do. And Clinton, thanks for calling in the question. And folks, don't be afraid to call in more questions for me. Take care. Great answer. I appreciate you, Keith. And uh, folks, Keith had left me some information before this about wanting to come down here and uh, maybe provide the, the cooking at some of the workshops we'll be doing. I'll be getting in touch with them with that, and we'll see what we can do, uh, at least on some of them. Uh, Montana to Texas is a pretty daggone long trip, but... Uh, He's welcome anytime he wants to, to be here, that's for sure. And with that, let's take another uh, call. Jack, Brent in Prince Edward Island. I called you a, a few months back about what to do with a overgrown aloe plant shaving gel. I took a sprig and I split it down the middle and I rubbed it all over my face, let it sit for a minute, and you want to talk about a smooth shave. Anyway, going to pass that on to your listeners. Thanks, man. Well, for those of you that are not among the uh, the bearded fraternity, that's a great tip, and I think that's a great tip for ladies too. And I do hear often from people about uh, issues with shaving uh, in a uh, in a true collapse society over time. And I say, hey, save a lot of blades and uh, shaving gel and cream, and you know you can store years of that for not much money. But um, I do think that when I used to shave. Uh, I I ended up becoming a very big fan of the Gillette Mach 3 razor, and I did that even though the blades were expensive because it was a very smooth shave and I didn't get any razor burn. And uh, I also became a big fan of any of the shaving products with aloe in them, so it makes sense that aloe gel would be a great uh, thing to do that with. So one more use for the ever-versatile, ever-useful aloe plant. And another reason why uh, maybe a pot or two of aloe inside your house would be a good addition uh, to your daily life and to your preps at the same time. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Mike from the Northeast, uh, currently in Connecticut, hopefully soon to be New Hampshire. I've got a woody problem uh, in that I've got wood on my mind, and I've been thinking about this question most of the day. I remember, or I think I do, a while back, somebody who was a guest on the show mentioning a book for creating, maintaining, and growing your own wood resources, like for burning and that sort of thing, which means it was probably Stephen Harris, but I don't remember seeing any book on that topic on knowledgepublications.com. So I don't know if it's a question for him or maybe a better question for Paul. I'm interested in putting in species that you know, can be uh, easily harvest, have fast carbon pathways like Jeff Watton is usually talking about, and, you know, having the, the potential to be installed early, harvested often, and be something that's not going to be a major drain either on the local systems I'm, uh, I'm setting up, you know, or on the larger ecology of the property. So anybody who can shed some light on that would be great. Uh, that being said, it might be a question for Paul Wheaton as well. I know Paul is going to say, well, you should build a rocket stove, and if you have one, you should use it. You know, and I'm planning to do that too, Paul. Um, and that's an, are there, uh, wood fuels that Paul has to suggest that would be better for growing just for using a rocket mass here? 
you know, perhaps um, something that wouldn't be suitable for your standard wood stove. It doesn't require as much infrastructure and upkeep, which actually has me thinking about security as well. In a situation where I need to put up a screen or something that's going to block a view and I don't have time to wait for a mature fruit tree to come in and provide that shade or, or block that view of a neighbor, are there uh, hedge crops or, or uh, woody perennials that I can put in that will grow so quickly that they can cover that view to five or six feet in a single season. Anyway, Jack, thanks for what you do, and I look forward to hearing this on the show. Well, the book is called Firewood Crops, um, uh, as far as the book that Stephen Harris has on his website. And he doesn't seem to have a page where it's a standalone information about it. It's on some other pages. I found a page where that book is. There's a link in the show notes to it. It's called Firewood Crops, Volumes 1 and 2, consolidated into a single book. It's also available from National Academies Press. It's a great book with one caveat. You're in Vermont going to New Hampshire, Connecticut going to New Hampshire. There's very few tree species cataloged in that book that are going to work in your colder climate. This is a book that is mostly for the tropics and subtropics in the developing world, and it's not really what I would recommend for you. But for others that may want a book uh, that are in more southern climates, there's a lot of very interesting species in there that can be looked at for doing just this. In your region, black locust springs to mind, as does the fact that Ben Falk of uh, Whole Systems Design is doing uh, exactly the type of work, including trials on it, to see what works best. So I reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to become a member of the council. He said yes, and this is his first answer, and it's a great one. So, Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. It's Ben Falk from Whole Systems Design, hoping to uh, try to answer Mike's question about growing fuel wood uh, while also getting other yields out of a hedge type of situation, you know, getting firewood and fence, fe- uh, fence, fence feature out of, a, out of a hedgerow, getting privacy and security from a, a fuel wood planting. We have had a lot of luck with planting black locust hedges in this way, um, and then we intersperse them with plants like seaberry and hawthorn and even hazelnut as well. Um, so in terms of species, it's hard to beat black locusts. They say you can uh, make more honey on an acre of black locust than any plant uh, in this region. It grows as fast as the fastest growing trees like alder and birch and poplar, yet it's as hard as white oak, um, uh, beech, you know, sugar maple. It's, it's as hard as hickory and as strong, and it's more rot-resistant than any of the above, even white oak. So it's really a, a you know, a gift from the gods type of tree, and it, it's the fastest way to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground from up, as far as plants go. Uh, it fixes nitrogen, so it's actually enhancing your soil rather than detracting from it. Um, and actually, it's illegal now to plant in Massachusetts uh, because of the kind of so-called invasiveness of it. So you know, maybe legal in your neck of the woods soon, too. So you might as well get these options in your landscape before uh, you're not allowed to, to develop these options. So we plant hundreds of these every year, everywhere from 6 inches to 18 to 24 inches on center, I would recommend. In your situation, as far as I can tell, if you want to get a good security fence out of these, I'd err on the smaller side and plant them on 10 to 18-inch centers and pollard them, cut them down at at about head level to promote bushiness and lateral growth down low. And then if you have the horizontal space, interplant them with like a sea berry or a hawthorn or a bramble on the south side of the hedge if you have a sunny side, if you're 
trending east-west with the hedge. Um, you could also promote suckering by stabbing a digging spade into the ground around the trees, and they'll shoot up suckers where you hit the roots, and that'll thicken up the hedge very quickly. So inside of three years, you could have a hedge that's impenetrable to human beings, and you know, within 10 years, you could probably stop most cars uh, and actually protect your yard from, from the road, for instance. And it does a lot also to keep pollution on the other side of the hedge and not on your yard side. Uh, the leaves, I mean, excuse me, the blossoms are edible on the black locust. Um, and the fuel wood is fantastic. You know, it's almost as good as like apple. It's up there with hickory and oak. So as far as growing them for fuel wood, you want to then let them get taller. So then that causes more shade. So depending on your situation, you're going to have to let the plants get bigger and not pollard all of them. We're letting uh, the ones we plant for fuel wood here, which is about 500 of them, grow bigger and we're, we plan to harvest you know every third or fifth or seventh plant while the others keep growing in a you know perpetual rotation and they keep sprouting so it really is a perpetual fuel wood uh, plant we would harvest when they're not any bigger than a bicep so you don't even have to split the wood and a black locust is also fantastic it has low standing moisture content so you don't need to dry it nearly as much as you do other other woods. You still want to dry it some, I would think, but it burns incredibly well. Um, fantastic species. You know, I would also look into hawthorn and seaberry to add to the mix, depending on how much space you have available. And you could also um, consider laying a hedge, which is really good just for a security fence. Um, you're not going to get a fuel wood value if you lay the hedge, you know, cut them down low, almost all the way through the stems and fold them over, you know, British uh, woodland style. But you'd get a, a very impenetrable fence quickly. You can do that with uh, hazelnut is popular in Britain. And Ben Law, author of The Woodland Way, is a great resource for this type of working with trees. Uh, so check his work out. And uh, best of luck to you. Hope it goes well for you. Thanks. Well, I, I couldn't have come up with uh, a better matchmaking uh, component than Ben's work and knowledge and experience in Vermont for an individual moving to New Hampshire to look to do the same thing if I try. That's about as accurate and as close a match as you can get. So thanks, Ben, for that. And we look forward to hearing from you many more times in the future. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack and listeners. This is Tommy from Las Vegas, Nevada. Just a quick question, Jack. Um, me and my fiance, we're going to be getting married within less than six months, actually September. And I'm going into through the financial situation. We're going to be getting into apartment first. And just to sum up the question, um, what, what do you think, uh, what are your opinions on prepping in an apartment? Uh, just trying to find out a good place to start maybe, just any advice you have for prepping in an apartment. Um, right now I do prepping at my house just with what I have confined in my room because I live with my parents. So I have a decent food storage and, you know, the whole bug out bag and a few little extra things. But when I move out, of course, I'm going to do more such as coffee canning and things like that. But just what are your opinions about prepping and preparedness in an apartment? I, thank you, Jack. I hope to hear from you. I love everything you do, and thank you very much. You truly are a patriot. All right, so apartments clearly don't have the space of a home, and they generally don't come with a piece of land that can be cultivated for homesteading, even small urban homesteading activities. The best you can usually do in that vein is maybe some herbs or some small potted plants on a balcony or something like that. So that just takes that whole component away 
unless you find uh, some sort of a community garden center or something like that or, or land share agreement or arrangement to do those things. And it's still not the same because if, you know, even if it's a couple miles away, if you have a real collapse scenario, um, traveling back and forth to uh, take care of tomatoes may not be an option. So we have to think far more of a contained prepping and we have to think far more about spatial limitations and we have to be far more space conscious. Uh, even a person with just a standard three-bedroom apartment, uh, three-bedroom house, I'm sorry, if, if they have a bedroom that's like used as an office or something like that, there's generally a closet in there, and you can cram a ton of prepping supplies into one closet in an average house today. Um, somebody with a four-bedroom house, even with two kids, and you got one extra room, you still have that. So the spatial limitation, because you got to have all your you know day-to-day -day stuff as well, is, is the biggest limitation. So it's important that we start looking for spaces that we can allocate to do things with that are hidden spaces, not so much so people don't find it, but so it's just not wasted. So one of the first things we can do is utilize the space under the bed. Uh, with flat, low-profile, Rubbermaid-style tubs with everything organized neatly because the less space you have, the more important organization becomes. So then we can have different foodstuffs, medical supplies, all our stuff under our bed. A way to maximize that is to get you know kind of a longer bed skirt or longer sheets or whatever uh, so that it'll still come to the floor and look nice and just look like kind of a high bed, but to put it up on some sort of a lift. They make them for dorm rooms. It's, it's done very commonly by college students. You can get those. You can put it up on some. You can do it yourself. It's, it's up to you how you want to do it. But maximizing that under the bed space, and all of a sudden you have a whole lot more space than you thought you, thought you did. Um, additionally, things can be done with setting a couch just a little bit off of the wall and maybe getting a little bit creative with the way you lay out your furniture, and you can create kind of you know a, a 10, 12-inch space back there that a lot of storage can take place in as well. Uh, definitely practice eat where you store, store where you eat, and really have kind of a good solid bug-out plan. And here's why. In a short-term disaster, let's say anything 30 days or less, where society is going to, or you know, direct or indirectly, is going to put itself back together pretty quickly, um, you can do everything you need in an apartment. Even a one-bedroom apartment, with a little bit of creativity, you can put in 30 days of sustainability. You're going to find it hard to do much more than 60. And if you're in something that keeps society down for 60 days or more, an apartment literally could be a death trap. If I am a douchebag, scumbag, piece of crap, um, vagrant, thief, uh, predator, and I want to go victimize as many people as possible, there's two places that make the most sense for me. Suburbs and apartments, and apartments are even better. Um, I can lay siege to people on a second floor or a third floor very, very easily with a small gang of thugs. Um, generally, um, people in apartments don't tend to know each other really good. They don't have... A huge community uh, going on. Some do. I know they do. Don't email me and tell me you do. I understand some do, but you know, by and large, they don't. Um, they're quicker to turn on each other. Um, there's Since there's no space between dwellings, uh, that's an issue. So a really good, solid bug-out plan should be part of any apartment dweller's uh, repertoire. Um, holding up during a true collapse in an apartment complex is probably not going to be a very good option. Um, it's probably not a good option in the suburbs either, but it's going to be the case that you can probably do it for a longer period of time. The, the big issue in a, in a truly bad situation in apartments is there's a bottleneck created. Um, there's lines of egress and, and, and ingress that, that, that are very constant and static 
and there's nothing really to work with there. And anybody who wants to set up an ambush, it's just, and I'm not talking about like, you know, an L-shaped combat ambush. I'm talking about two guys that want to knife you and get into your apartment and take whatever you have and go away. Um, it's just an easier scenario to set up in an apartment dwelling. Uh, generally, there's more petty theft and crimes within apartment complexes, even nice ones. So you have to have a plan to extricate. And you have to have a plan, let's say, for 30 days of sustainability. And, and uh, to cut it short, that's really what you need to build your plan around and make most effective use of space. Um, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, I had a question about firearms and ammo and pretty much the scarcity of any kind of products and, and ammo and stuff. Um, my question was, uh, you've been hearing a lot about the Department of Homeland Security, of course, buying uh, all kinds of ammo and armored vehicles and whatnot. And what's, what do you think the likelihood of this being somewhat of a small-scale arms race between the public and agencies like the Homeland Security? And I was just uh, trying to put things together and one of the things that came to mind. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for everything you do, Jack. Keep up the good work. Okay, there, there's a lot at play in that question, and the, and the answer is both yes and no. And I'm not going to tell you for a second that I'm not concerned about local law enforcement having possession of armored vehicles and, and things like that. And uh, some of the stuff that's going into the hands of very small hamlets and things like that just doesn't need to be there. Uh, and it is quite concerning. But let's start out with the, uh, we, I've seen this so inaccurately reported that it, that it makes my head spin. The, the big story is the federal government purchased 2 billion rounds of ammunition. It's primarily uh, 40 Smith and Wesson. And, well, that's, those are combat, well, the combat rounds. And it, well, that's what they carry is 40 Smith. I mean, that's the, the primary uh, cartridge for sidearms used by just about every government agency uh, out there today, uh, either that or 9mm. And the civilian components or the non-military components, it's almost exclusively 40 Smith, uh, law enforcement, etc. So it's, it's not a surprise. And they're hollow points. Well, that's, that's what they carry it, so they don't over-penetrate. Again, it's not that I'm not concerned. It's that, you know, this is being mischaracterized and overblown. And then here's the big one. They bought 2 billion rounds of ammunition. They did not buy two billion rounds of ammunition, for God's sakes. You, you, you're sure they did, right? Go read the actual uh, memorandums and reporting. They put out a contract to purchase up to two billion rounds of, of ammunition. They have not purchased nor taken delivery of two billion rounds of ammunition. It is a multi-year contract to purchase up to that amount with no guarantee that they will. They're giving themselves a contract that allows them to purchase that. That does concern me. I am concerned, but I am not as concerned as a typical Alex Jonesite would be about this. This is not so they can kick your door in and kill you. Please let go of that. Unwrap the foil from your head and pull back a little bit and look at the bigger issue here. Let's look at the heart of the question. Are we at an arms race with our own government? I think the government is scared shitless of the armed populace. And here's what I have to say about that. Good. You should be. Because you can only push us so far. You need to understand that. Uh, one of our founders made a statement that's it's one of my favorite quotes, and it's not often talked 
uh, about very much. And, and the most commonly attributed party is Thomas Jefferson, but we're not really sure where it came from. We know that the first time it ever appeared in print uh, that we can track back to and find it is actually 1914. But it sure sounds like something Jefferson would have said. And it's certainly consistent with his views on government and people and arms. And it is, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Unfortunately, I think we're at a stalemate now where we fear each other. And that's a problem. But the government should fear the people more than the people should fear the government. I, I believe that. And I don't mean that, you know, they, they should fear, you know, revolution like it's some kind of banana republic, but there should be a healthy fear in the heart of every government official, uh, that this population is only going to be milked and, and, and have our blood sucked out for so long before we're not going to tolerate their crap anymore. Because frankly, that's about the only thing that will keep them in check is that fear. Um, I do think there might be something sinister at play here with buying this much ammunition, specifically as they buy other uh, ammo as well. Um, if you really wanted, if they really wanted to do this in a way that would really have an impact, uh, they would add something with a large uh, pistol primer and a large rifle primer to the mix. And that is, what if it's just to dry up the supply of ammo and drive up the cost? We, we can't ban it, so we'll just buy so much of it and we'll, you know, and it's a certain amount of time before the free market kicks in and actually it, it goes the other way. But initially you can, you can exasperate a shortage, uh, with large contracts and buying lots of ammo. Um, do I think that there is some level of, uh, this going on? The people thinking we're going to make sure that we're as armed as they are and the government going, Oh shit. What happens if all hell breaks loose? Absolutely. I absolutely think that, uh, that that's going on. And uh, again, I think in some ways it's very, very bad and very, very frightening, and in some other ways it's good. Um, the people running this country should know that they answer first to the people, not to whoever their boss in the system is. That you answer first to the people. And that's not just the elected officials. It's the, the, the huge roles of employees that are paid with public dollars that have positions in law enforcement and regulation um, that were put there, and, and they can't be voted out. And they tend to really quickly think that they don't answer to the people, but you are stewards of the people's funds and the lives of the people. And if there are people in government that are afraid of an armed population, my response, again, is good. Good. And please think about it when you're taking actions to oppress your people or further tax your people or further impede your people. The government is supposed to be there to ensure that we all have a equal opportunity to pursue happiness, not an equal result. The government's role is supposed to be to protect the rights of the individual so that the individual can pursue happiness, so that the individual has uh, the ability to exercise their rights to life and liberty. It is not to guarantee success. And the reason that we have so much trouble today is the government has taken on the role of guaranteeing success. And this is something that every single person out there that calls themselves a liberal or a progressive or works in government and thinks it's a noble cause needs to get through your stinking head. You cannot guarantee success for people. It cannot be done. And done to excess, it will lead to conflict. 
Sooner or later, there will be a con- it will either be a conflict because a breaking point is reached between the sides in the conflict, or it will be a conflict because the system, and this is the more likely case, the system will fail. The system will become overburdened. The, the false fakeness of the system will be revealed. And it, the economy and the systems built by the phony economy will literally implode on themselves. And when that happens, you're going to have all different types of problems that relate to violence. There will be vigilante violence that will be justified, and there will be vigilante violence that will be unjustified and excessive. There will be plenty of violence by the 10% of population that are complete scum, and the people in the government that think that they can do enough to contain that have no idea how bad it is, and the ones that do are the ones driving this 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 guy's calling an arms race because they're afraid and they have a, a, a multitude of fears about the, the the dangerous people they have a, a huge number of fears about the people that are just going to snap out there are millions of people in this country who've never worked a day in their life and and or, or they have but they've done very little there's millions of people in this country that do work that are provided with additional assistance, that have been on that assistance so long, they no longer see it as what it is. It's a gift. If you're on assistance, even if you're working to get it, if you're on assistance from your fellow taxpayers, you're getting a gift. And a lot of those people don't know that it's a gift anymore. They think it's now an entitlement. They're entitled to it. No one is entitled to shit at the expense of another person against their will. We've come up with a system that allows for it to take place. There's both good and bad in it. But you're not entitled to jack diddly shit taken from your fellow citizen at the point of a gun and by force of government. You're not entitled to it. But a lot of people think they are. And they will burn down shit when they don't get it. What I'm saying is this force apparatus of government is a two-edged sword. In some places, in a real breakdown, you'll be begging for it. And in other places, you'll have to fight it. It all depends on how the situations occur. But, I mean, there's this concept that people have that, well, the government should never fire on U.S. citizens. Government fires on U.S. citizens every day. It's called law enforcement. If you're breaking in my house and a police officer tries to stop you and he believes his life's in, in threatened in any way, he'll shoot your ass. And you know what? You need to get shot. You should have broken into my house and you should have been in a situation that made it look like you were a threat to the officer's life. And if you get shot there, I have no sympathy for you. Very, very simple. And if a crowd of a thousand people are trying to burn down a city and some of them end up dead because of it, you shouldn't try to burn a city down any more than if somebody should try to burn down my house or your house down. On the other side, we know what happens when government power goes unchecked. And we're in a very dangerous position right now with a government with more power and more lethality that has ever existed in the history of mankind, and not just the nuclear arsenal that's been with us for a long time. The modern weaponry that they have today with drones and with uh, a lot of other weaponry is frightening that that much power exists in the hands of government. And it is going to be a really dangerous time when this beast, and I don't mean this in a biblical tense, I mean just literally this is a beast 
This U.S. government economy, this fake economy, this global economy that's been created is a beast that is going to lash out in its death throes when the paradigm fails. They know it, and we know it, and in essence, on some levels, we're preparing for the same thing. And it's the, the only hope that we have is there will be enough good people in government to put restraint so that the, the other, the, the citizen doesn't have to. And one thing the government should be aware of, if they go too far, there's about 55 million people in America that will help them understand their need for restraint. And I'll leave it at that. About 55 million of us. Remember that number. It'll come back sometime in the near future. Not today, but sometime in the near future. You might want to look up and try to figure out what that 55 million number represents. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Zach from North Carolina. My question for you is, being new to libertarianism as a political ideology, what is the role of public libraries with libertarianism? Is it a good uh, use of tax dollars, good use of liberty? Uh, is it a good resource from a survival perspective, given that you can uh, have access to materials you might not have access to otherwise? Just would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, thank you for everything you do. Look forward to hearing the next comment question show on uh, that you post, even if this question doesn't make it. Thank you. Bye. Well, it, it depends on who you ask. There are libertarians that, that gravitate so much toward anarchism that they would say that there should be nothing that the government does. They shouldn't build roads. They shouldn't build schools. They damn sure shouldn't build libraries. There shouldn't even be a government. And see, to me, if you say that, you're not really a libertarian. You're an anarchist. And I know people want to debate that with me, and I don't care. And you can say what you want, and I'm going to tell you that that's my understanding of the two schools of thought. But libertarianism itself has this wide... Uh, array. So people like Glenn Beck fancy themselves libertarians. Glenn Beck is not a freaking libertarian. He's conservative. And, and there's, there's way too many social issues that he's not willing to let other people have their way with for him to be calling himself a freaking libertarian. He's not libertarian even leaning. He's a conservative. He's fiscally conservative and he is socially conservative. A, a libertarian is generally thought of as fiscally conservative and socially liberal. And within that, there's this wide array and range. But the basic concept of libertarianism is if I want the freedom to do what I want as long as I'm not harming anybody else, I need to let you have that same freedom. I need to be okay with it even if you choose to do with it what I would. As long as I don't have to pay for it, as long as you ain't hurting anybody, it's none of my freaking business what you do. Well, how does that relate to, to libraries and, and libertarianism? Well, again, there's a spectrum in there. So you would get people that call themselves libertarian would say, absolutely not. I look at it this way. When we deconstruct the 90% of government that clearly is a waste of the people's money and time, and maybe even 80% if we want to be a little bit more lenient with them, 80% of government is just complete crap and we don't need it. Um, the 20% that we can look at as legitimate functions and cost-benefit analysis and all, libraries would go on that 20%. 
I'm not even concerned with cutting libraries other than, you know, if there's a across-the-board cut and they get cut too, they deal with it, right? I'm not even concerned with libraries until we get rid of like the 80% of the crap. Let's look at like if we're going to go on a road trip together and we're all in Miami, Florida, and uh, we're going to, uh, to, to Nashua, New Hampshire, and Nashua, New Hampshire is Libertopia, right? So like we're going to have to get to like Philadelphia before we even start to think about is this really a problem? Right? Should the government be building roads? We're in Philadelphia before I'm worried about whether the roads are a problem. Now, the mechanism and the waste with full spending within there, there's plenty of probably waste in both libraries and in road construction, but the core concept themselves, we're, 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 yeah, we're getting to Philadelphia before we say, well, how big a role should we have there? It's so much other crap, just to be clear on that. Now, my personal view is that There are certain things that allow for what the anarchist will tell you is the, is the key to running a society without a state, which is education. And that I would prefer a hundred times more libraries and library resources uh, today over the average public school system. I'd rather see school completely decentralized and privatized and the libraries made available with massive amounts of knowledge and resource and information uh, and good quality materials and let that be the system of education so that the state provides the resources and the individuals decide about the angle of the education. All right, well, people wouldn't learn how to read. Yeah, people would learn how to read. They won't learn how to do math. They'll learn... They'll learn how to do math, for God's sakes, you know. I mean, really. Uh, well, there's some people that are like, algebra's the devil, and they'd never let their kids. Those kids aren't going to learn algebra anyway. You know, really relax. Relax is kind of my view. Of when people Again, because see, now we've moved out of libertarianism. You're not sufficiently wise to decide the, the approach that your child should take to education. We need a state to do that. So actually, to me, libraries in and themselves... Um, while there is some control over what goes in a library, in most libraries, you'll find everything from the most conservative to the most liberal uh, of information and, and, and from fiction and nonfiction and everything in between and reference. So I, I'm fine with a library overall as a concept. I do think there's a lot of room to move libraries into a true concept of the uh, 21st century. I think that as much information as possible should be digitized and freely available that way. And people say, well, what does that do to the author? You know, well, you can do a lending, and libraries are doing this now, where you can basically borrow the book to your Kindle. You can read it, and then basically it goes away. You don't get to keep it. Uh, it was loaned to you by your local or, or state library or what have you. And I think we need more and more things like that. I think that the library is the solution to what I call the college textbook scam. It's amazing how many times you'll go take a college course and the textbook was written by the teacher that that's teaching the course. And the textbook is like $150 or $500 or something. And I, I think it's ridiculous. I, I think there's absolutely no reason uh, that the information side of education can't be made more affordable. And library-like concepts are, are really a great way to do that. If you look at the cost of a, of a degree and you look at the cost of books within that degree, it's a huge, huge cost that doesn't need to be there. And it really is so that... Teachers can supplement their income by mandating certain textbooks.
somebody that's written a textbook is going to email me and tell me how wrong I am, and I'm going to just simply ask you how many of your freaking books would you have sold if they weren't mandated by a college system? And the answer is very few. Very few would want your book uh, on 18th century French literature unless that they were mandated to make it part of their course. And I, I do believe that there's a huge scam in the education system with textbooks, and I think it's even worse at the public level uh, in, in the secondary, post-secondary uh, level uh, with textbooks in elementary schools and things like that um, because it's completely controlled and contrived and then pushed in, and then the student's not paying for the book, but the taxpayers damn sure are. And if you've ever been a student and lost a textbook, the, 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 the cost of a textbook versus a standard book of about the same size and breadth of information it is completely ridiculous. So I think that the school, the education systems, and the library systems need to move more and more towards a digitized uh, co component, which actually could drive down the overall cost massively. Um, if I was supreme overlord, libertarian ruler of the United States, I would take it on uh, on my back to build a complete and total reference library completely available online for anybody and everybody so that information could be freely available from just about any source that it would be uh, had from. You just get into this area where it really is complicated uh, with doing that. And we're seeing the problems with that now is, is information once digitized can be replicated uh, almost infinitely. Um, with, well, how do you incentivize people to continue to create great content and great information if all the information is always available? And all I can say to that is it's always been the case in my life that I could go to the library and check a book out or I could buy it. And I think when people put out really great information that people want to do business with them. And uh, I think actually what libraries and lending institutions and, and digitized content do is allow people to actually look at content and go, that's not worth my money. That's not really even – I'm sad I wasted the time on it and actually choose to compensate the people that actually put together the best information. But I'm not opposed to libraries as a libertarian. Uh, I do think there's room for improvement. And I do think there's a lot we can streamline, but I got like 80% on the shopping block before even we get to discussing what to do with libraries. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, let's take another call. Jack, there's a new uh, TED Talk by Alan Savory, S-A-V-O-R-Y. trying to understand how his talk fits into permaculture generally and specifically for, uh, you know, how, how I should manage my yard. Uh, if you could please address that, it was linked to by Wheaton, I believe. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, well, I saw this video that is being talked about, Alan Savory's video on a TED Talk uh, about a week ago, and I put it up on Facebook. It's 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 pretty amazing. And uh, for those that haven't seen it, I'm going to put a link in the show notes today, and I, I really recommend you spend the 15 minutes to watch it. Just the before and after uh, photographs alone are amazing. But basically, here's what Alan figured out. Uh, he went in as a scientist for a long time and said that the problem in certain areas that were being desert, uh, you know, made into desert, too many animals on the land, more than the animals, uh, more than the land could carry, and they did a lot of work where they reduced, you know, cropped elephants and things like that, and then the land just got worse or didn't get any better, and they, nobody could figure it out. And eventually, he came to the idea that maybe instead of reducing the headcount of animals on there, I need to increase the headcount of animals. So he started stocking animals at densities of four and five hundred percent beyond what conventional wisdom says the land could hold. But he didn't just let them run around aimlessly. He would put them into paddock shift, which we've talked about a lot, and move them every day so that those animals were in a high density, so they behaved like wildebeest. 
So if you go into the Serengeti plains uh, that are still very healthy, the parts of it that haven't been screwed up, and you see, and you find a huge herd of wildebeest, you'll see wildebeest as far as you can see. And, but there's plenty of space that they could be in other than that space that they're all occupying right now. And they'll sit there and they'll eat. And they'll basically crap and stomp on the thing that they're eating to a point where they'll go, I don't eat that anymore. And then they'll move, but not one at a time. The whole herd will move, and it'll do it again and again and again. And it might be a year before there's a mob of, of wildebeest on that exact same spot they started on. It might be three months, but it's not going to be three days. And it's going to happen over and over and over again, and the land gets richer. Because what happens is all the, the manures left there, the what you would call litter, and we think of litter like a cat litter box, that's what I'm talking about, but pasture litter. Uh, the plants, the grass that dies and is trampled, both standing and fallen litter, make contact with the soil. The animals push that into the soil. There's a biological exchange, primarily bacterial there, between the manure, the litter, uh, and everything else in the soil. And then there's a sheltering by the litter. All this stuff that gets folded and bent over actually protects the soil underneath until such time as that litter breaks down and becomes part of the soil. And while that's happening, more litter is replacing it, so there's a constant mulching. And all they've done in some of these areas, I mean, the only thing they did was put animals in. They even put animals in places where you're like, there's no way animals could even like survive there. And they didn't feed them at all. They didn't feed them crap. They put them in, and they just started rotating them through, and pulsing them through, and pulsing them through. And they re-greened. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's gone from being a hellhole to a paradise from doing this. And it's amazing. And we should all be practicing it at some level on our properties. One of the reasons we just added chickens to what we're doing here is to pulse them through the landscape. I really don't want goats and sheep and stuff like that, at least not right now. I don't want the work. And I got a flock of a dozen birds, and I'm already thinking I need more to do this right. We do the same thing. And it's what we should be doing with our, our properties is pulsing animals through them. The, the bigger message that Alan Savory has is so counter to what everybody that fancies themselves a permaculturist without knowing permaculture has. Permaculture attracts a lot of vegetarians and vegans and wheat is good and my dress is made from wheat and I eat wheat and that type, you know, kind of like a Phoebe-ish thing from friends, right? And um, that's not permaculture. It's not. Because permaculture by its very definition, uh, along with the ethics and the prime directive, has to be sustainable. And growing wheat is not sustainable. And what Alan has determined through his research is that there's a huge swath of land that is some of the most violently disputed, most uh, over-taxed, uh, uh, most hungry people uh, out there land that you cannot support with, with, with vegetation. You can only do it with animals, and you can only feed people using animals. There's room for some cropping in this, but mostly it's an animal-based protein-yielding system. And, and I believe he's absolutely right, and I think... When it comes to managing our own systems at home, we need to get, even on the, the, the quarter acre lot, if we can, some level of livestock into there and get that component because there's nowhere you can go in nature where there's no animals unless we've you know, wiped it out and destroyed it. 
And that means that animals are part of a natural system. And if we're going to emulate a natural system, that animals need to be part of it. But the basic way I would say to this is a small flock of chickens being paddock shifted through the landscape. If you could follow that up with even, you know, tractoring rabbits or something else and have a multi-species uh, shift rotation. And the best thing would be a true herbivore. Uh, but some of us don't want the, the trouble or the hassle or the work or it's not practical. Um, uh, so goats or sheep or something like that uh, could be a small version. Uh, cattle. Cattle are probably the ideal herbivore. Uh, to put into a larger scale paddock shift rotation system. They most kim closely would mimic uh, the behavior of buffalo or wildebeest or something like that. If we're going into a forest-based system, it's nowhere near uh, the same. A high-density mob grazing doesn't happen in a forest. High-density mob grazing actually happens in savannas and extends forests naturally. That's how the forests were grown by, you know, the precursor of uh, modern cattle is the, you know, the European ox, the wild ox that actually advanced the forest in its wake. And uh, water buffalo do this. Cape buffalo do this in the savannas of Africa. Uh, the, the great buffalo herds that we think is a plains animal uh, did a lot of work to advance the edges of forest systems in their migrations. And it's that emulation that we should be striving for. I think if you watch the video and, and do some research on mob grazing, the question really kind of answers itself. Hopefully this gives you some information, some things to think about. What I find interesting about Alan's video is, and, and most of you guys know, I think that human-based climate change uh, from a standpoint of CO2 is crap. It's complete crap. And if any of it's happening, it's so minuscule compared to the total problem, it's not worth worrying about. It's crap. And I know the cowards out there is going to get all upset today. Coward, no one cares what you have to say. Um, just wanted to throw that out there because you're an annoying, cowardly little prick that won't tell anybody who you are. I even know who you are. And you won't tell anybody who you are. If you ever want to tell anybody who you are, let me know. Otherwise, you're completely irrelevant to the discussion. But I believe that. I really do because of the research I've done, because of things like the CO2 saturation limit, uh, and because most people that believe in CO2 causing the planet to be warmer don't even know the scientific theory behind it. The scientific theory, by the way, is not that CO2 is doing it directly. Uh, the, the saturation limit is acknowledged. Uh, at about one-third of one percent, Uh, in the atmosphere, uh, CO2 has reflected all the UV light that it can. The, the scientific theory behind all the models, here you go, all of you that think I'm wrong, I bet you don't know this unless you've heard it from me before, is that the CO2 levels, as they're higher, increase the atmospheric uh, humidity. And it's the humidity that actually causes, the, so water vapor is the actual culprit, but CO2 causes a higher preponderance, of, and it just doesn't play out in the experimentation that's been done. It just doesn't work. But we are altering the planet through de desertification, and carbon is a key. It's not that the carbon's in the atmosphere. It's that the carbon's not where it needs to be in the soil. And putting the carbon into the soil indeed is the solution to halt and stop climate change. And Alan Savory is stopping climate change by going into places that we've turned into deserts, putting a bunch of cattle in there and moving them through following a sigmoid curve, and restoring the climate in those environments. And the more we do of that, the greater the impact it will have on total global, global climate, and the more rainfall that we'll have as well. And if the planet happens to get warmer in that situation, it's actually a good thing. I know a lot of you don't believe that. I know you don't get it. I know some of you don't want to, and that's okay. But what I'm telling you is, 
you want Jack Spearco to fight, fight climate change, I'll do it. This is how I will do it. And uh, if you listen to Alan, uh, you'll see somebody with decades of proven experience doing just that, turning deserts into oasis. Um, check it out. I will include a link in the show notes today. And hi, Coward. How you doing? Huh? You want to stay a coward or you, do you want to tell people who you are? You keep pissing me off, Coward. One day maybe I'll put a picture of you or your house on, on the Internet for everybody to see and say the coward lives here. Until then, I'll just, I'll just play with you and see if you'll ever be enough of a non-coward to stand up and tell people who you are. Sometimes you just got to do that, folks. I'm sorry. I hope you will uh, excuse uh, my guilty pleasure there in taunting someone who is a complete idiot. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Nick from Poland, Ohio. Uh, my question is, my wife and I both have IRAs. We have a financial advisor. We no longer live in the state where the financial advisor is. How do we go about disassociating ourselves with him so he does not take any more of our money. It's not doing anything for us. Um, currently, we've stopped putting our money into the IRAs, and um, we just I would like to know how I get away from him. Thanks. Bye. Uh, easiest question of the day. Call your advisor and tell him you want to take over self-management of your funds and that you no longer require his services, and to please assist you with that process. Uh, you can do something like set up a brokerage account, move all of your accounts there to yourself, an independent managed brokerage account. There's a lot of ways that you can do that. But in many instances, you can simply even keep your investments exactly the way they are and just have your broker's name removed from them, your advisor's name removed from them, and you can just simply make a phone call to make changes. You do need, if you want to be able to liquidate, to exchange, to change forms, to sell stocks, to buy stocks and things like that, some sort of a, a brokerage account. But, I mean, you, if you want to, you can do that with E-Trade. Uh, you can literally set up an E-Trade account and have all of your securities moved or a Scott trade or something like that uh, and move all of your, your accounts. And even if you want to do an IRA, you can set up an IRA and, and, and move the, move all everything, both retirement and non-retirement. And it's so simple. And basically, all you have to do is play Donald Trump for about five minutes, call him up and tell him he's fired. Uh, when he asks why, tell him, I don't need you anymore. And uh, take it from there. Uh, let's uh, let's take one more and we'll uh, wrap up for the day. Hey Jack, this is Zach from Washington, and I'm 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 currently in the process of a move um, to the southeast Missouri, uh, northwest Arkansas area, and um, currently do not have a place to to grow anything. So I'm uh, growing some stuff on the land of a friend of my. Mothers and um, they have an old farm, almost 100 years old, that has an old pond that hasn't held water in a really long time, and they they broke the dam a long time ago, and didn't have water in it for a long time. A few years ago, maybe maybe 20 years ago, they they had the dam restored, um, but since then has not held water. Um, I'm trying to figure out what you know where where to kind of start with this. I know you know a lot about hydrology. Um, so I don't know if this is a question for you or somebody on the uh, expert council. Um, but but uh, you know if, if um, Paul or, or or somebody else has 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 some idea where where to start. You know is is the problem going to be at the dam? Is the problem going to be somewhere further up? Um, 
you know, and and where to kind of help help uh, these people kind of get get this dam going again and and this pond holding water. Uh, thanks a lot for your for your time and uh, your answer. Bye. See, to really fix this, you have to actually answer the questions you were asking there early on, which is where is the problem? And there, there's two types of situations that, that most likely have occurred here. One, the dam was basically purposely drained and left drained and then put back, and I don't know how much material was taken away and where the material was taken from, but there's two possible points of, of major points of failure uh, with this dam. One is that the surrounding soil and this is the one most people think of first, and it is possible, is so porous that it just won't hold water anymore. And because it was left empty and then degraded and broke down, whatever was sealing it kind of is gone now, and the water is basically dissipating into the soil. In all direct, not just down here. It's basically the soil is is actually absorbing and allowing water to kind of flow out like a, like a sieve. And, and that's possible, and it's even probable. But the other problem is probably the, most likely the dam breast itself. When you build a dam properly, you don't just dig a hole and put stuff up. You actually go down before you go up at the impoundment. And what you need to do is you dig in what's called a keyway. And if this dam never had a keyway, it's even more likely. And if it did have a keyway, then um, it may be that the keyway has been damaged somehow in all of this uh, process. But basically what you do is you dig a, a, a slit in the ground. Uh, deep or deeper than the, the planned depth of the dam. And you take the very best material, the most sealing material you can get, the finest material you can get, and you compact it into this trench. It's, for lack of a better terms, a long, thin, you know, a couple feet, three feet, four feet wide trench dug down into the ground to the depth of the dam at the dam breast. And that actually, when you think of like a big dam like Hoover Dam, right, and you see a big stone coming up out of the wall or up out of the canyon way, way up high, and then it holds the water back. It's basically that structure made with earth uh, and fine materials underground. And this basically dams the water from flowing downgrade underground. And you continue that as you build, and you build your, your impounded above-ground dam, the part you see, interlocking and on top of it. They lock together like a key. That's why it's called a keyway. And as the water actually is impounded both above and below grade, and now we have a depression where we've removed the material, the water basically is, is almost like damming a stream, right? Because the water's always underground and always moving, and now we've obstructed, and where's a natural place for it to congregate? Inside this dam that we've built, and assuming things are fine enough there, the water builds up, the water flows in, the watershed collects, and we're, we're, we're basically creating an environment where we have moisture beneath the dam surface and the water that flows in from surface water, the two combine and we end up with a sealed dam eventually. Okay, And it, it happens very, very rapidly when it's properly built. So we're both worried about the water being able to flow past the impoundment and seep into the ground. So we need to make sure the dam structure is in good shape, and we probably need to bring in someone with experience to look at that and determine where our problem is. There would be three ways that I might try to seal this and might even not even mess with the dam and just try to seal it and see if it'll work. Uh, the easiest and most reliable method, but probably the most expensive, depending on the size of the structure, would be bentonite. If you bring in three to four inches deep of bentonite and completely coat the surface of the inside of this dam with bentonite, 
uh, and roll it flat with a roller, um, it will seal. It, it will seal, and it will seal like nobody's business, and, and you'll have a structure that will last a, a very, very long time. If it's a, a 10-acre dam, it used to be, then you know that's totally different than a quarter of an acre. You can probably afford to, to, to bring enough bentonite to do a quarter-acre dam. You, you really probably can. Uh, that's the, the least natural and probably most expensive and most bringing in materials uh, way that you would do this. If the dam will hold water, but it just won't hold it long, Okay, so like if, if we get a rain event and it's full, and then within two or three weeks it's drained, okay, then go get a bunch of ducks and put them there. And what will happen is you'll see the dam fill up and the ducks will be in there shitting their brains out, and it'll start to, to go down, 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 down. And there'll be these little puddles that'll, where the water will stay longer, where it's, only, it's not seeping out, now it's only evaporating as the duck crap has begun to clog things up. And they'll go in those puddles and they'll really crap a lot in there and then they'll they'll trounce around and they'll compact it and it'll get muddy and within a season the ducks will probably seal it if it'll hold water right now for a week or two there after a major watershed event ducks will probably alone fix the problem um, ducks added to the bentonite solution maybe using a little less bentonite getting it started with holding would probably work as well or you can use glee Glee is basically, if, you, if you've ever tried to make compost and done it wrong and had a really thick layer of greens with no browns in it and it was trapped from oxygen and then you dug it up to try to see how your compost was doing and it was like this gross, jelly, disgusting, gooey crap, that's Glee. So the way we could do Glee is we can sandwich green between, let's say, two layers of, uh, of compost material or even just fine layered earth. So we can get topsoil, compost would be better, or even a 50-50 mix. Very careful where you get your compost from. And lay down about a half inch to an inch of compost. And then any green material you can get your hands on, lawn shavings, clothes, I don't care, as long as it's not toxic, right? As long as it hasn't been, you know, we had Paul Wheaton's uh, 10 minute plus lecture on, uh, on things like uh, uh, herbicides. So as long as it's not going to have that problem, we're going to get, we're gonna, I mean, like six inches deep. Like when you step on it, like you feel like you're on a big thick carpet and then put a layer again of, 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 of compost or topsoil, if that's all you can get on top of that and, and roll that in with a machine. And what will happen is in the anaerobic environment where that, that, that green material, that, that six inches of green fibrous material will turn into about an inch of slime and that'll seal it. And if you add ducks to that solution, um, it'll get there. And when you talk to Jeff and say, what have you done to seal dams? He says, I've only ever used duck shit and glee. And those who don't like the word shit, I'm sorry. I don't consider it a curse word, even though I do have adult language on the show. And that's the same word Jeff uses in his PDCs. And that's, it's not duck poo. It's duck shit. And if you use the combination of ducks and glee, you can probably steal up just about any dam. My bigger concern is since it was let out, do you need material? I mean, have you lost material? And this is going to be another problem. Maybe the material was taken away, and when the dam let, was let loose, there was a lot of you could lose tons of material in, in, in one failure of a dam, and it's not enough there. And then the solution becomes: I know we'll take we'll take more out of the dam, right? We'll take more out of the hole, and we'll build the the breast back up. And now we've gone below a clay layer, and we get down into a gravel layer, and and, and it won't hold again. You could probably still rectify it, but that may be part of the problem. But that's that's kind of the approach I would take. You know, look at it. Uh, where can you get material from? How big is it? How much is it going to cost? 
And uh, what can you do? If it'll, again, if it'll hold water for a couple weeks, you'll get about three or four dozen ducks and just stick them in there and start feeding them and maybe give them a couple uh, stock tanks and what have you. And every time a stock tank needs to be emptied, just dump it into the depression uh, and, and they'll, they'll fix it for you. Um, but if it won't hold at all, if it rains and it's just kind of muddy and it's gone in a day, uh, you're going to have to bring in some other material, uh, either glee it or bentonite. And with that, we've got the uh, show wrapped up for the day. Uh, and this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. Are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.